Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Wish, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I look up at the stars to guide me and throw caution to every warning sign, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, on this special bonus episode, I'm patiently waiting for my wish to come true, with no reason to suspect that it won't one day. Ah, wait, this is it? Oh my god, my wish is coming true right now! Because my one wish was to discuss the latest Walt Disney Animation Studios movie with someone who knows the ins and outs of animation like nobody else. And this adorable glowing star came down as provided exactly that. I'm joined by a man who, in academic circles, is simply known as Dr. Magnifico, and ends every lecture by declaring, this is the thanks I get to his ungrateful students. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Hello, Dr. Magnifico. <laughs> Hello. That's great. That, that really sounds like super villainy. When it's, like, yeah. Magnifico on its own, like, we know he's not really a spoiler, he's the baddie in the movie. Dr. Magnifico, that feels extremely like 50s Superman villain. <laughs> See, I was going to say King Magnifico really does read as Disney, that is a great Disney villain name. Dr. Magnifico feels like it's on the minions end. <laughs> it feels <laughs> yeah. like the rise of Gru is going to cross over with Dr. Magnifico at some point. So we are here because it's going to be a week until we get to Lilo and Stitch. Just for full disclosure for everybody, Lilo and Stitch is going to be a week late. We have a very special guest for that one, an international guest. The time zone shenanigans are off the charts, but we have the recording set. I cannot wait to get into that film. I actually still haven't watched it yet, but Lilo and Stitch, we're a week behind and we didn't want to leave you waiting we wanted to just put a little something up on the feed and since we last recorded wish has come out the 100th anniversary disney feature and we were gonna do a couple of minutes at the start of the lilo and stitch episode just talking about this and then we thought let's just give it a little bit of space now so this is a mini episode just about wish we are going to do a full proper episode down the line on the podcast when we get there but we thought we should do a little bit of an instant reaction pod so that is the reason why we're doing this just a little something to keep you entertained until lilo and stitch comes around sam other than watching wish other than watching lilo and stitch what have you been up to oh it's been good i had a good little christmasy cozy disney-ish evening last night we'll put our tree up and we uh, were wrapping presents actually sorry lydia was wrapping presents i can't i do not have the dexterity for wrapping like if you (laughs) well for wrapping presents you do have the dexterity for audibly wrapping (laughs) 
<laughs> but with gifts, my fingers just don't work in that way. Uh, I'm an active participant in the Christmas process, but if there's wrapping to be done, she's like the elf in Arthur Christmas who can make anything look beautiful with just three bits of sticky tape. And I <laughs> am like Arthur Christmas himself, just flailing around, doing his best, but uh, not... Is anyone, have you seen Arthur Christmas, Ben? Is this a? Do you know what? I've never seen Arthur Christmas. I, I think I've got a copy of it, but I've never watched it's it. It's a great movie. It's a really, if you want like an animated Christmas movie this year, watch Arthur Christmas. It's really underrated. It's good fun. But on the TV while this was happening, we had a run of little dips into some Disney content. So we had this documentary that came out in 2009. It was made for the Walt Disney Family Museum. It was directed by Don Hahn, who we've mentioned a few times. He's like now very much a Disney historian, but he produced like Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and a lot of those classic Renaissance era movies. And he put together this documentary for the museum, uh, which is now being released on Disney Plus, and it's called Christmas with Walt Disney. And it was a really fascinating watch. It was narrated by Diane Disney Miller, Walt's daughter, who has since passed away, but was like chiefly responsible for this non-Disney affiliated Disney family museum. So she's narrating it and talking about what it was like growing up with Walt Disney and what Christmas was like in the Disney household. And this is accompanied by home video footage that Walt and other people took like in the Disney home while they were celebrating Christmas. And it's, you know, if you want to watch how obscenely wealthy people in the 1940s celebrated Christmas in America, this is a, is a good way to do that. But it also is an interesting insight into Disney's home life. You see him messing around with his model railways and things like that. Um, <laughs> but you also get... Lots of clips from Disney TV holiday specials, like presented by Walt from the from the fifties and sixties, and clips from Disney Christmas themed cartoons. Like there's a bit of uh, Once Upon a Winter Time, the Mary Blair designed short from uh, Melody Time. I think it's Melody Time. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's really really good. You see some stuff that you're not going to see anywhere else. There's like clips from Disneyland Christmas parades from the nineteen sixties, which are off the wall. The things that you see in this documentary. I think I'm going to post some images on Twitter at some point in December of like, this is what a 1960s Disneyland Christmas parade looked like because you've got animals doing things you didn't think they could do. You've got um, <laughs> pyrotechnics. You've got like fun skits from the Disney characters and like nightmarish costumes and stuff like that. So there's loads of... It's just a really cool insight, this documentary, into mm. the Walt Disney family Christmas, but also how the Walt Disney Company packaged Christmas for its audiences uh, during the Walt era. Oh, I can't wait to watch that, especially an insight into like Walt Disney's own Christmas. Starting the day, the tree is there, all the presents are underneath, but before anyone's allowed to open a present, Walt reaches up and he grabs an owl out from the tree and he chucks it on the floor and he stomps on that <laughs> owl. And as soon as the owl has been stomped, Christmas has truly begun in the <laughs> world. We spent like household. hours and hours of podcasts talking about Walt Disney and all we have taken away. The only, every time we <laughs> reference him now, like since he died in the chronology of the podcast, it's always just the owl. It's the only character yeah. trait that we've retained from that era of the show. Number one, dude likes trains. Number two, as a child, he stomped on an owl. <laughs> what a world. We are planning another little Christmas bonus as well, just just to keep you guys informed, we're looking at doing another little Christmas special episode. So we'll tell you a bit more about that when the time is right. But for now, we're all sat down. The register's complete. It's time for whatever this little bonus episode is to begin. So we're going to do a little brief discussion on Disney's Wish. Wish. 
Okay then, I think we should probably say up front, this is gonna be like a spoilery chat from the beginning. This is not the the most spoilerable movie, but I think the value in us doing this is that we are just gonna chat about the film itself. So if you haven't seen Wish yet, it is in cinemas. This is not on Disney Plus. It's probably not going to be on Disney Plus for a while. I think they are going to keep this in cinemas for a fair amount of time. Uh, and not many people are seeing it in the cinemas at the moment. I think because of the Disney Plus thing. I don't know how long this is going to be in cinemas for, given the, the money that it's taken in. But it's I think they have an interest in keeping it there because it's this 100th anniversary celebration. I went to a presentation about this film a couple of months back. And Jennifer Lee made a real big point of, obviously they had higher hopes for how this was going to perform. If you're a bit lost here, this film is not doing particularly well at the box office. It has struggled at the box office in a pretty big way that the studio surely has to be feeling some level of disappointment about. But prior to all of that happening, a presentation of footage from this film a couple of months ago in London... Jennifer Lee, chief creative officer at Walt Disney Animation Studios and the co-writer on this film, made a big point of being like, we are putting this in cinemas, we're going to keep it in cinemas, it's playing long in cinemas all over the holiday season. Right. And so that seemed to be a real statement of intent of, yes, Disney Plus has been a big thing for us recently, but hey, this is a cinema movie, it's properly in widescreen for the first time since Sleeping Beauty... And that's because we want it to be in cinemas and we're keeping it in cinemas. And so even though it's not doing particularly well, I do think in a world where Pixar's Elemental this summer also did not perform very well when it initially opened, it had record low numbers for Pixar and actually really ended up being a bit of a hit through the summer. They just kept playing it. It did pretty well internationally and it made over $500 million worldwide. And so whether or not Wish does that, I do still think they are going to keep this film in cinemas, keep it there for over the Christmas holidays. Yeah. I don't think necessarily people are rushing out to see this, but it doesn't mean that people won't be going to see it over the next few weeks. So if you haven't seen this yet, it is probably showing at your local cinema. Go and see it, come back, and then we'll get into what we think about the film, because I think it's hard not to do spoilers for this. So that is your warning from this point on spoilers to a degree for a disney movie that is an original story an original fairy tale but you know how these stories turn out it's not it's not going to be the most spoilery conversation so sam have you got a brief plot synopsis for this one i'm springing this on you and it's maybe not the easiest plot to sum up because the, the plot of this movie is a little bit wishy-washy. Wishy-washy. Was that deliberate? It wasn't, but we're in panto season, so... Uh, no, I meant because the movie's called Wish. Oh my god, it works on many levels. <laughs> Not because of the the classic... What's wishy-washy from? Is it Aladdin? I think, yeah, it, seems, it tends to be Aladdin. It's like the comedy character in Aladdin. Okay, anyway, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> this short bonus episode is, is getting longer by the second. So, no, I have not written this down, and you are right that I think... To really get into like the thrust of the plot of this, it's quite tricky to summarise. It's not like a very easy elevator pitch, I don't think. But you can get yourself off the ground quite easily. So this is set in the kingdom of Rosas, which is run by 
the slightly dubious but universally beloved King Magnificor, and he is a magician, and his whole deal is that he grants wishes. On your 18th birthday, you make a wish, he then keeps that wish, and then at some uncertain day in the future, he may or may not grant that wish. And everyone loves this system. Battle protagonist, a 17-year-old girl called Asha, ends up taking a peek behind the curtain and realising that all is not as it seems. Magnifico is being extremely choosy in terms of which wishes he grants and when. He has selfish motivations and she wants to bring this regime down so that everyone can have their wishes returned to them. You did a great job of summing that up because it is... You know, it's not the easiest story for this one, and it is a new original story from the studio, but playing on lots of fairy tale tropes that we know from having seen so many of these films. So let's get into the big picture stuff. What were your feelings heading into this, and what did you make of Wish? I was cautiously excited i can't remember how much of this we've talked about on the podcast necessarily i think we've definitely talked about wish previously i know that we talked about it when we were at the bfi for example on that live episode but i'm pretty sure we we talked about like the trailers and our reactions to them and mentioned the new art style and stuff like that a little bit i was quite cautious about this i was excited for a disney 100 movie because it's like they are obviously pushing the boat out here to try and do something that feels momentous and feels commemorative and nods back to the past. The main thing that I was quite cautious about, just based on the trailers, which didn't give away a whole load of plot information really, was the art style, because they have clearly tried to do non-photorealistic graphics. I don't want to say inspired by Spider-Verse, because it looks nothing like Spider-Verse, but at the same time, yeah. it's obviously part of this post-Spider-Verse wave of computer-animated 3D films being a bit more experimental in terms of uh, the actual aesthetic of the image. Based on the trailers, so what they've tried to do is here that the backgrounds are 2D, resemble watercolour paintings, but the foreground and the characters are 3D presented in a style that is meant to resemble cell animation. I'm hesitant to say cell shaded because that's not quite what this is. Cell shader would be something like the Wind Waker where it's like completely flat and that's not what this is but it does have a more like painterly quality to it and I was slightly sceptical going in mainly because I wasn't sure how successful that looked in the trailers. I was not really won round by the film itself. The one thing that I was really excited for was the star, who you see in the trailers. The star is fully 2D, really stands out, looks completely different to anything Disney have done before, but to the rest of this film as well. And that's one of the things we talked about when we talked about how Disney have visually represented magic at the BFI. Often they do it in a way which is visually distinctive from the rest of the film world, which is already animated, already fantastical. So here they've got a film which is already quite stylized in terms of its look, and they've brought in this character who is even more stylized, more cartoonal, flatter. I was excited for him, for me that was successful the star character that paid off i did think it looked really cool and it was cute and it got up to some interesting antics but the rest of the movie yeah i wasn't sure going in i wasn't sure that i was gonna love it even though it felt like it was being designed to push a lot of my personal buttons in terms of nodding at disney history and in particular looking like it was bringing in elements of that renaissance formula including the openly dastardly villain which had been left by the wayside of late but the things that i thought does this make sense the things that i thought i was going to be disappointed by i was yeah, i yeah. went in with an open mind i didn't go in wanting to dislike it i really wanted to like it but i had seen warning signs in the market and, and for me 
my prophecy was fulfilled. <laughs> the opposite of your wish, your fears yeah, were. Yeah, because you, yeah. So overall, you were disappointed in I this, was, right? Yeah. You, you, this was not everything you hoped it would be, and it was some of the things that you feared it might be. For me, I think I liked this more than you, but I don't think it's a home run. I think there are things that I really like about it. There are things that I had a really fun time while I was watching it. I wasn't sitting there in the cinema going like, oh no, this is, they're getting this wrong. This isn't great. I just think it's not quite up to par. And when you look at that recent run of Disney movies, really the last decade, you've got Frozen and Moana and Encanto and a little bit before that Tangled it's a bit of a shame that their Disney 100 feature for me is not quite up there with those for a couple of reasons which we're going to get into but I did have a fun time watching it there were things I really liked about it and I'm lucky I got to see this at the premiere which is always quite a nice environment to see a film in but it was with a big audience with lots of kids in it and listening to how the film performed for those kids it worked for them in the ways that it needed to. I think for us who are kind of extra invested in this and interested in, in what it's doing, there are qualms, there are questions. At the same time, there are also things that I think are really interesting in the, the questions this film is maybe asking itself and the answers that it's coming up with, which again, I think we'll touch on. But uh, yeah, I thought this was good, like solidly good some great bits some disappointing bits and i think you're a little bit lower on that scale than i am yeah and mainly because of the positioning of the film as the disney 100 film which it would be difficult for anything to live up to because they didn't have to position it in that way they've done that deliberately in the marketing but also in the movie right really clearly yes, yeah there are way more nods than you would generally expect to previous Disney movies. The closing credits, which I think we'll talk about as well, are very <laughs> much pointing at Disney's past as well. So the movie itself is doing that. There's the marketing, which can do whatever it wants, but the movie is, this is the Disney 100 movie. It, it, it's always telling us that. It's always trying to live up to that. If that's the movie you're making, I think it, it just needs to be better. And there's things, I think the songs in particular, which could sort easily have been better and just so clearly and dramatically fall short of what we expect from a Disney musical and that's why it was disappointing I think if this was a, just a random movie if it had come out in a different year if it had been made by a different studio I'd be saying okay that was all right it wasn't great but this isn't me bringing unfair expectations to the movie because it happens to be coming out in this particular year. This is the movie telling me this is what we are aiming to do and they are only ever going to get to do that once, right? And with the best one in the world, I'd be amazed if, if, you know, I'll never live to find out, but if Disney, the company, still exists in 100 years, that's a true triumph, <laughs> right? They're never going to get to do this again. And it's like, this is, this is it. This is all you had. These were the creative decisions that you made for this movie that you knew had this kind of pressure on it. You know, there are people involved who I had higher expectations for as well, like Chris Buck, who co-directed Frozen, directed this, Jennifer Lee, who co-directed Frozen, co-wrote this, and she's the current, like, creative steward of the Disney Animation Studio, and I've got a lot of faith in her capability of living up to that role, and I'm really excited to see what the next few years at the Jennifer Lee-run Disney Animation Studio looks like, but for me those people, I'm surprised that they made some of the creative decisions that they made because they are people who know how to make a Disney fairy tale musical and they are people who know 
about the history of Disney and about what this movie could have meant and didn't quite put in the effort needed to get it there, in my opinion. So before we get into the stuff that we liked and the stuff that we didn't like as much, let's go straight to those end credits, because if you've seen the film, you will know all the way through the end credits, it goes like film by film through every Walt Disney Animation Studio, just like this podcast. I think they were inspired by us, Sam, and they bring up a character from each of those movies in the credits in this like sparkly, wishy star form. How much did you scream when Aladar from Dinosaur <laughs> popped up in those credits? <laughs> it was it was a really that was for me the most exciting part of the movie, and that's not a diss. I know it's easy to say like, oh, that what was your favorite part of the movie when it finished, but that is also the thing that made me wish there it is that we watched this together because we would have been treating this like a world cup final (laughs) in terms because (laughs) these credits were expertly constructed right they built a tension i think unintentionally but they they built up this tension about like so who are gonna get who's gonna be in this how far are they gonna go because they do snow white pinocchio fantasia dumbo bambi and we know they're gonna do those so within those five films they've established they're going film by film in order and then you see bambi and you're like right now they've got a decision to make Who's coming next? Are we going to see some caballeros? Are we going to jump straight (laughs) to Cinderella? And crucially, what they did, which is what made this such a rewarding viewing experience for me, we didn't get the caballeros, we got Ichabod. So that says they are willing to go deep, but they are not doing everything. So now it's like, oh, okay, we don't know what we're going to get. We don't know who's going to get skipped. We don't know who's going to get included. Now it's a game. So I'm watching the whole thing thinking... All right, I know who's coming next. Are we going to get... Oh, no, we didn't. We didn't get the rescuers. Oh, that's weird. Did we didn't we get it. I don't think we got the rescuers, and we didn't. Right. We definitely didn't get rescuers down under. They didn't do Frozen 2 or Ralph Breaks the Internet either. That's fair enough. Okay. But I'm thinking, are we getting, like, Brother Bear? There it is. Are we getting Chicken <laughs> Little? There it is. Meet the Robinsons? No. No Robinsons. Right. But Dinosaur is obviously a really big one, because that has now canonized. No the Wild. No Wild anywhere oh, to be no, seen. no, no, no. no. This is canonized dinosaur. <laughs> there is no turning back now. Dinosaur is a, is a canon Disney classic. There he is, Aladar on the screen. Like, if we would have screamed so hard at that, uh, yeah. if we were together, so that's a shame. Who knows, they didn't go for Zinni? Where was Zinni in the credits? <laughs> there were some weird ones for Big Hero 6 that did the bad guy instead of Baymax. Yeah, there were some interesting choices. Those credits, I wish I was sitting next to you for those. I did say to Lizzie, we have to stay through these credits because I need to see all the characters that they put up. She was like, fine, fine, we'll wait through the credits. Yzma. Yzma was there for Emperor's New Groove. Great choice. Yes, outstanding choice. Anyway, that's enough on the credits. Let's start with the positives. Even though you were disappointed in this film, tell me something you liked about it, Sam. What's a, what's a good thing from this film for you? You know what? I liked the voice performances. I liked the performances of the two leads. So Ariana DeBose as Asher, and she is great. If you've seen Spielberg's West Side Story, and if not, I think that's on Disney+, Plus. it's great. And she is amazing. She's so good. Yeah, I agree. Thought Great performance from her. Yeah, so obviously, fantastic set of pipes. Since West Side Story, I've been a fan. I've been waiting to see what she does next. The BAFTAs, I think, was was literally <laughs> the next thing that she did. We'll forgive her that. She did the thing. Haha. <laughs> God, that was less than a year ago, I'm pretty yeah. certain. Crazy. Time is an illusion. So I was happy to hear her. I think she gave the character the right amount of personality. And obviously, hell of a singer. Chris Pine? 
his big song, I wasn't feeling it, but his okay. his spoken dialogue, I thought generally really great. And he's got an interesting role to play here because this villain could easily have been a Prince Hans, right? Could easily mm. have been playing the hero for the vast majority of the movie and then it's like a third act twist that he's a dodgy fella. And I think one of the best decisions that they made and one of the things that does make it feel like a real tribute to Disney's past is bringing that forward so to the point where it's obvious from the trailers, it's obvious from the poster that he's the villain. So it's like a first act thing that we see behind the curtain. We'll find out that he's doing something dodgy with these wishes. And I think Chris Pine plays that really well. And as the character starts to like let the mask slip, but also like generally have a breakdown and you kind of see his, his sense of self shattered as well. Cause he, you know, it's a classic villain thing, but he really doesn't see himself as evil until he yeah. does and this character has a moment where he kind of embraces villainy which not a lot of disney villains have we've had the twist villains of late and we've had the classic renaissance villains who were just evil for the sake of being evil all the way through the film and this is a guy who has to play that turn and i thought he did that really well because he is just charming and charismatic and that's why they've cast him but uh yeah i thought he did sinister but also like the in-between place of like smarm and pettiness yes. very well yeah, see, for me, that leads me on to one of the things that I like about this film. I think there are a couple of really good songs. For me, I really like This Wish, the Ariana DeBose, big I Want song. I think it gets that tone and that feeling right. I have qualms with the lyrics of basically everything here. But in terms of that song, the first time I heard it, they played it in that footage presentation I went to. And like two thirds of the way through the song, it was like, no, okay, this is doing what it's needing to do. It's getting the feelings across. I've listened to that quite a few times. There's loads of videos online as well now of like Ariana DeBose performing that at Disneyland in front of the castle, which is cool. It's great that they have performers who can do the acting performance, but also do the singing. And then she basically is Asher in real life when you see her doing those performances, which is cool. But I actually also did like the King Magnifico song, the This Is The Thanks I Get one, which Sam is pulling a face. He, he didn't like it. I don't completely love it, but when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this has a really interesting angle to it of it's a villain song, but it's also him singing the song to himself that he wishes other people were singing to him. He's like, why is nobody singing about how great I am? And so he's singing a song about how great he is to himself then with the added angle of like but you're not singing this song about me so i'm fuming about that and i liked that sort of weird angle on that song and that as it goes along he's getting more and more unhinged he's going into the dark magic and the last little portion of that song where he is really indulging in the full-on evil of it all chris pine's voice in that and him leaning into the villainy gloriously yeah i, I really liked that there are a couple of songs as i say that i think are, are generally really good everybody clapped when i can't remember what it's called the big like stompy knowing what i know now knowing what i know now knowing what i know now yeah that one everybody applauded at the end it didn't happen that often in the film but that's one that like led everybody to cheer again i i have some qualms about that song but generally i think that one's good so yeah i i, I like some of the songs here this wish for me is like the standout and i do think that is going to go down as a generally well-loved disney song even if maybe we'll get into this shortly the lyrics are quite generic 
but the feeling is there and i don't think it can be taken for granted you know getting to that feeling so that's a positive for me have you got other positives sam what else do you want to draw out i've said i like the star i like elements of the animation i like the ambition here there's the star but then there's other magic effects as well like i think king magnifico's maleficent green magic is is yeah pretty 2d as well and sometimes when he's like using his hands for the magic then like the green tendrils look like hands and all of that stuff super into it great yes give me green tendril magic that is mirroring his hand movements like yeah really into that yeah that was cool and the star as a character is fun like if they want to make little spin-off shorts with the star in the way that they have with olaf i'll watch those i was less enamored with the goat unfortunately because oh, you're not into valentino I just, I like Alan Tudyk. You know, I love a lot of his Disney performances. I love his King Candy. Like, when we get to that movie, King Candy and Wreck-It Ralph is a fantastic performance from him. He's good as the chicken in Moana and all of that. (laughs) I think this missed the mark, but the star fills the sidekick role very well. It's cute. It has relevance to the plot. Uh, It's kind of funny, and it looks really cool. And the goat didn't have any of that for me. I'm very quickly segueing into things that we didn't like as much. But uh, (laughs) I like some of what they're doing with the visuals. I like the backgrounds. I didn't like the character animation very much, but we'll get to that. So uh, I said before that there are a couple of points watching this with a largely child-centric audience of like, okay, this is working for the kids. One of those things was... King Magnifico did something evil and a kid started crying. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that is working. That is doing what it needs to do. Another one was there's some kind of like Valentino goat based butt joke. He like backs into a wall and then it reveals a hidden passage and he's like, my butt found it. And yeah. all the kids absolutely cracked up. So there are a couple of moments that really stood out of like, okay, this is working for that audience, you know. Um, I-, I enjoyed the goat, but you're right. The star is the standout character not just from an animation standpoint i like it's again we talked about this a lot at the bfi but the like transformational qualities of that character in himself he he always has this like red woolen thread and he's like making stuff out and making himself little cloaks and that was really fun and really inventive and just a super charming character design he was like properly delightful yeah, that's that was a great choice, if a bit of a random one, giving him this piece of red thread that he uses to make... It allows him to express himself. It's it's like he doesn't fully shapeshift his body in the way that the genie does, but he's still got this very fluid object that he can warp into different shapes to get a bit of character across to like comment on things without speaking. The thing that I'm undecided on overall is the look of this film. And I need to see it again, because when I saw this... I was quite far away from the screen. I had allocated seats at the premiere. We were up on the balcony, like halfway back. And so I didn't really get the full effect of the watercolour textures and the 2D, 3D hybrid animation. I enjoyed watching the film, but I was like, if I'm really going to get the impact of this art style, I need to see it again and sit quite close. What did you think of that overall? You've touched on this a bit, but what did you think of the way that this film looked and moved? I didn't like it. Right. It's that and the songs were the things that I just thought flopped. So I do not know how this was produced. I don't know how this was achieved. I don't know at what point in production they decided that they were going to do this to try and give it a 2D, cel shaded like painterly style in the 3D animation. 
I've had a little bit of a look around for, for stuff on the internet about the production. I haven't had time to do a really deep dive on it. So, you know, I've been researching other episodes and job and things like that. But So maybe this information is out there and I just haven't found it. Certainly by the time we actually get to this, I'm sure there'll have been documentaries and interviews galore and we'll be able to find out a bit about its genesis. So th this isn't a critique of the production of the film because I don't know. This is just my version of explaining my problem with how it looks. It looks like an afterthought. It looks like they decided they were going to do this after the models had been made, after a lot of the animation had been produced. These models do not look like they were designed to have this, what I'm going to call a filter over the top of them, because that's what it looks like. It looks like they animated it, and then, you know, you can get on, like, TikTok and stuff, oh, make me into a Disney character, make me into a Pixar character. <laughs> it looks character. like a filter. Yeah, it looks like they've animated the 3D models and done that to it. Because they look the same. You could put these characters in Frozen, right? Design-wise, they look identical. Yeah. Now, you look at something like Paper Man, which is now, I think, over 10 years old. I think that was 2012. The short that accompanied Wreck-It Ralph, which is the first time we really saw Disney. And really, anyone on this level in Hollywood try and produce animation that married the best bits of 3D and 2D. And those characters resemble Disney characters that we recognise from the 3D films they already produced. Like they, they could be from Tangled or something like that in a way, but they also look more native to the flat world that they inhabit. Whereas these characters, it looks like an afterthought. It looks like they've been designed and then 2Dified afterwards. Another example, like, this is a weird example, actually, but on the Spider-Man games on, on PS5, right, where you've right. been playing the first one, I've just finished the second one, you might not have got this far, but you can unlock suits that look like a comic character, or you can okay. unlock suits that look like the Spider-Verse animation. And it's cool, but literally what they've done is they've just taken the default model of Spider-Man and just given it, like, a 2D filter. They haven't animated everything anew to make it feel native to the art style that it's been produced in and that's what this looks like to me and for that reason it looks cheap so when especially when there's like close-ups of the characters okay i can kind of feel what you were going for here making them look like a, a cell animated character but when you've got shots with a lot of characters moving around like long shots with a bunch of characters in frame or like characters in the background and stuff like that I think when you are so far away from the effect and you don't appreciate the nuances that some of these characters have in close-up when it comes to the, the shading and stuff on them, it looks like a cheap movie. It looks like an early non-Pixar, non-DreamWorks mm. 3D movie like happily never after or something like that right i don't know if you're it's like a, a poor shrek like fairy tale ripoff thing or like hoodwinked or something where they don't have the capacity to give the characters the textures that you find in pixar characters so they look flat by accident and when you're looking at a bunch of characters in this film that's kind of what it looks like this process of transferring them from 3d to this more 2d graphic aesthetic it just has not had enough time in the oven for it to convince and for it to look natural to me. Yeah, I think that's something that's come up with people, that even people like us who talk about this a lot don't necessarily really have the language to get into the ins and outs of what these new animation styles are, what we're calling them, how we break apart, what they're actually doing and, and why they're interesting. But I think something that speaks to that is that I know some people who have seen this and not really liked it have said it looks like AI. It looks uh -huh. like it's AI generated. And I'm like, maybe that's exactly what you mean. Maybe that's not exactly what you mean, but there's something about it that speaks to it. As you say, maybe feeling a bit inorganic. 
or like something applied afterwards to a process that they were already doing. So I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know how I feel about that yet. And I'm going to try and see this again. And by the time we get to it on the podcast, I definitely will have watched it again because I'm going to do a rewatch. So I'm intrigued to see how this settles down. But I do think overall this hasn't been a visual slam dunk. I applaud them for trying something different. But it's not like when you came out of Spider-Verse or seeing Ninja Turtles this summer and you were like, wow, that just worked. Everything about how that looked and felt worked. I don't think we've necessarily got that sense here. And it's like, so Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse, like people now understand are seminal. And you wouldn't have said, like there was years when I heard they were making an animated Spider-Man movie. I was like, why? What's the point in that? It's not like that was ever an obvious thing. But then when the trailer came out and then we watched it, it's like, okay, right. This is one of the most visually complex works of art that I have encountered in years. It's it's obviously going to mark a sea change. But like, we are talking about a Disney movie and like it, the quality of its visuals and the experimental qualities of those visuals in negative terms in relation to like a Ninja Turtles movie, <laughs> Puss in Boots 2. Like, so many people are doing this so much more successfully. And this one, it just feels... I'm not trying to say that the people who made this were lazy. I'm sure this took a lot of effort to produce. I know how much work animators and directors and everybody puts into these things, but they look lazy. And that's a distinction I want to make. I'm not saying the people who made them were lazy. I'm not saying they are the product of laziness. But whatever they were trying to do, the effect that they have achieved is making it look lazy. Yeah. Personally, I would like them to maybe just try and move beyond that Frozen-esque character model at this point. Right. I think we've had like over a decade of characters generally looking like this in a Disney movie, and I would like to maybe see that be switched up a little bit. So talking about some of the other things that maybe didn't quite work as well, I struggled with some of the side characters in this. There is a whole gaggle of side characters who are there for a very specific reason. So Asher has seven pals, and those seven pals have personalities that correspond to the seven dwarfs from Snow White. It's part of the throwback nature, it's part of the, as Disney, what can we do that nobody else can do? We'll refer to our own history. And it was a cool idea to say, right, yeah, we're going to embrace the personalities of the seven dwarfs, And we're going to create these new characters that have similar personalities. So, for instance, you have Dahlia, who corresponds to Doc. Gabo is grumpy. Hal is happy. Simon is sleepy. Safi is sneezy. Dario is dopey. And Bazima is bashful. But it just ends up that you have this whole load of side characters who aren't really doing anything in the film, and yet they're in it for a surprising amount of time. Not enough time to really get to know them and be anything other than just, like, stock characters, but enough that you're like, why are these characters weirdly prominent? And it's just there to be a reference. That was a sticking point for me, because so many of these films have great side characters, have great people around that protagonist, and I think Asher deserved better than these seven slightly strange people. Two of them have actual roles in the movie. The sleepy one ends up briefly becoming a villain, and the doc one is like the best friend and confidant of Asher. You could have just had those, or you could have had none of them, because we already have her mother and grandfather, who are really important characters in terms of fueling her motivation for doing what she does, and yet don't actually spend much time with her on screen in the film. You've got the the king's wife, who also has like an important turn, which is 
underserved. And you've got the goat who, again, we'll not dwell on this too much, but I think feels like an afterthought as well. He, the goat doesn't have a significant relationship with Asher. He doesn't have a significant role to play in the plot. He's just there for butt jokes. And it's great if that makes kids laugh, but so did Olaf. <laughs> and Olaf had a personality and a relationship with the main characters and roles to play in the story and an arc. And the goat doesn't have any of that. It's so crowded with side characters. It's on the short side, which is fine. So was Snow White. That had seven side characters as well. But that had (laughs) one hero and one villain and the huntsman who was just an an accessory. Whereas this has loads of characters who feel underserved because there's too many of them. And you could have cut six of the seven dwarfs out and the story wouldn't have changed. Let's talk about the story as well. Because I don't think the story here is bad. I just think it's not particularly well defined. And we've seen this in recent Disney movies when they create a new world, create a new mythology, and it's always a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. To their credit, they have put in a lot of work to think about how these worlds function, and then they have to have five dense minutes at the start of these movies to go, okay, so this is the world, and these are these people, and they have beef with these people because they want this, and now all of the world wants this magic thing, but they have to go to this place to get it. You you get that a lot. I think Wish is maybe one of the ones where that, again, feels a bit undercooked, and it's getting into the, you know, as you said in the plot synopsis, everybody gets to make a wish, and King Magnifico holds all the wishes, and sometimes he grants the wishes, but not every wish gets granted, and you can wish and give it to King of Magnifico, but then you forget about your wish, but also then you could wish upon a star, but then the star is also a real character. It starts to just get a little bit all over the place, and it just needed tightening up. I really applaud them for coming up with that idea of, let's do something about the wishing star. Let's do something about wishes and wishing upon a star, and that is so specific to what Disney does. But the result of that... It just felt like the whole thing needed another draft, you know? Because the extra layer of complexity is that the wishes are also like basically part of your soul. And that's why what Magnifico is doing is wrong. When you give him your wish, you basically forget about your wish. You lose the part of your personality that wanted that. And that's something that isn't necessarily stated up front and we have to learn over the course of the movie, which usually is a good thing, like show don't tell, but also it would have helped to know that a lot earlier than we do so that we understand the stakes of the story, so that we understand why Asher is so upset about what Magnifico's doing. Because the turn here is that she finds out that he is picking and choosing which wishes he grants. He is granting wishes every so often. I think in his song he says, like, he's granted, like, 14 in the last few years or something, so it's not many. But what she finds out is that if you have a vague wish, like her grandfather's, that he wants to inspire people, that Magnifico thinks could be a threat to him, he won't grant it. If you want to be the best dressmaker in the kingdom, which is going to make the kingdom better, which has an obvious utilitarian function for Magnifico, he'll grant it. Okay, fine. But... Asher knows that when you give up your wish, you're giving away a part of your soul. Everybody knows that. And she knows that these wishes hardly ever get granted. So why does it matter whether he's just picking a name out of a hat or he's choosing them for selfish reasons? Like, obviously, that's immoral what he's doing. But for her and the people of the kingdom, what's the tangible difference between the method they thought he was using and the actual method that he's using? The, the motivation of the heroine 
makes so little sense, which I guess we've got to get a bit of a move on so I can segue this nicely into, means that her big wish doesn't make sense when she wishes on the star. And that is tied into the fact that this is not articulated in the lyrics of the song, right? The lyrics of the songs here are incredibly generic. The only one that feels very specific to the situation is the King's song, which I dislike for different reasons. Right. The lyrics to this wish, which is a powerful, rousing melody, as it needs to be, have just so little to do with the specifics of the story and could be lifted and placed into any Disney movie, almost any movie, as the motivations of the main character. And what they need to do is, you know, this song, this wish that she makes in this song is so powerful that it totally changes the cosmic game. This is what awakens the star. This is what brings that power down to her and kicks off the whole plot of the movie. And what she's saying in the song is, I make this wish to have something more for us than this. What does that mean? To have something more for us than this? Yeah, it doesn't really mean anything. There's a point in that song where she is all full of energy and she's like, I'm looking for a sign for any direction of what to say and what to do. And it's like, I'm so full of this passion, but I just don't know where to direct it. And it's like, that feels like what the song is, that it's got the feeling right, it's got the energy right, but the actual focus of what that is supposed to be doing is just not clear. She is a character without a direction in that moment. Right, so her motivation is undercooked, and the song lyrics are undercooked, and the plot of the movie, like the lore is undercooked, and these things are all interlinked together, and it just... That's why, you know, we're saying maybe the visuals look AI-generated. The plot feels... And I know it wasn't. I'm not saying it was. The plot feels AI-generated. The lyrics feel AI-generated. Like, seriously. If this was a different studio in a different year, I wouldn't be interrogating it as much, but it is. And if they're deliberately trying to nod back to the history of Disney, songs in Disney musicals serve purpose. Songs in yeah. Disney musicals, even the old ones. I'm not talking about Howard Ashman. I'm talking about Whistle While You Work. I'm talking about High Diddly D and Actors Life For Me. These are imbued with character and meaning. Another character in Pinocchio couldn't have sang that song. A character in a different situation couldn't have sang that song. They are so specific to situation and character, they have such voice to them. Even though the, the pre-Ashman and Mencken ones you know, weren't as central to the, the plot as the ones that they wrote, they are still infused with character. And that's why we remember them, and that's why they are classics. And obviously, after Howard Ashman... It becomes so central. He absolutely mastered this idea of like a musical theatre song that feels both universal and specific. And what they've got here is not that. And, you know, they have Lin-Manuel Miranda's number. I'm not saying he has to do all of them. <laughs> they have the Anderson Lopez's numbers, right? Their songs for Frozen are perfect in all of these ways that I'm asking them to be. Let it go right? Every song doesn't have to be let it go, but that is specific and it's general. It's general enough to have meaning to anybody in any situation, but it is also about Elsa. It is also literally about being an ice queen. There are references to, you know, the specifics of the situation in the lyrics. These songs do not have a sense of voice and they do not have any sense of specificity. Yeah, so they've gone with new songwriters here. So Julia Michaels, who I think is also partly a pop star. She's had a couple of pop hits and um, she's working with Benjamin Rice, but I think Julia is being held up as like, here's our new songwriter. And I think there are some great melodies here, but yeah, I, I have some struggles with some of the songs here. That I'm a star number is like 
so beyond peppy it feels like I'm being inducted into a cult. A very, very happy cult, but a cult that I don't necessarily want to join. And I have such a high tolerance for we are all people made out of the same cosmic matter that exists across the rest of the universe. I have many readings at my wedding that were basically all to that effect. I, I love that idea, and there are some bits in here that I like. I like that there's a line about why our eyes look like microscopic galaxies, which is cheesy, but it's it's a nice sentiment. There's one line in I'm a Star where they say, when it comes to the universe, we're all shareholders, and I'm like, never say the word shareholder in a Disney movie. Just never use that word. We're putting that word in the bin. We're never singing shareholders ever again. That just, every time I heard it, again, they played it in the footage presentation and I really liked this wish. I was like, okay, this is really good. And then they played that one and I was like, oh, even for me, with a high tolerance to happy clappy Disney nonsense, this is extraordinarily happy clappy and I think they just said shareholders and I don't quite know how I feel about that. So yeah, I have quite with the lyrics all the way through here and I think you're right that these songs don't necessarily feel completely tied into what is happening in the film and I think it's a big ask as you say when someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda is working at the studio and you look at Encanto and every single word in every single sentence of a song in Encanto is doing like five things at once. Those songs are mind-blowingly dense with meaning and explaining all these characters and this, again, slightly wild, slightly woolly at times mythology. But those songs are doing so much and they hold incredibly interesting functional points in that story. And as much as I applaud the studio for going like, this is going to be our our sort of throwbacky Disney 100 film at the same time it's all about newness it, who are the new people what is the new talent we're bringing in I love that idea but I wish I loved the songs <laughs> as much as I love that idea so I have some drawbacks here the thing that I did respond to though and we'll get into this more when we do this film properly down the line is I just think it's interesting in as you say, this very consciously being the Disney 100 movie and being a film that maybe works more interestingly thematically than it does on an actual plot level of Disney asking itself, what do we even mean anymore? That you have Asha as this new heroine who is like the Disney of the present pushing into the future. I'm going to be the one who drives where this goes next. I'm making the wish. I'm going to make this a better world for everybody. She is the like spirit of contemporary Disney. At the same time, you have her grandfather, her kindly grandfather, who's turning 100 years old. And we all love the kindly grandfather who's turning 100 years old. And we want warm things for this old man. And look at his legacy. And ah, yes, we feel nice things about the 100-year-old man. It's the King Magnifico of it all that intrigues me because he is basically also set up as a Disney figure. He is a powerful white man who has constructed his own kingdom, his own magical kingdom with a castle that he is in charge of. And he welcomes everybody in because in his kingdom, your dreams can come true. This is where your wishes can come true. And that is the most Disney idea of all. That is... Disneyland incarnate that is what these films are doing it's like I'm creating this space that is gonna welcome you in anybody can come here and we will enjoy this magic together and then the reveal of like if you don't live up to that responsibility if you make the wrong choices 
he goes from being like the custodian of people's dreams to the guy who was like trapping people's dreams and not allowing them to come true. I was like, if the city of Rosas is Disneyland, it goes from like, hey, here's a place that you can come to and live all the fantasies you want to live to a place that you can come to, but for a high price and that, yeah, you can live your wishes for a couple of days, but then you've got to go back home. And once you leave this place, a bit of your soul is left behind and you go back to, you know, living your ordinary fine life, but with a little bit of something missing, a bit of magic that we control here and we're the holders of that magic. And that idea I thought was super interesting, that then it's all about Asher having to inspire people of like, no, you you can all have your own magic. It's about allowing everybody to have their own magic rather than putting everything you have into the control of somebody else. But that is Disney. I don't know. Was this playing out to you as you were watching the film? Yeah, it's the different... I think putting the granddad in the equation, which is not necessarily obvious, so I'm glad you've picked up on that, um, that really gives you different versions of Disney, maybe different periods of history, different takes on Disney, especially because you've got like the granddad who wants to write a song that inspires the world, that's his wish, and then when it's granted after the end credits, he writes When You Wish Upon a Star. So, okay, so that positions him again as like a Walt Disney figure, the guy who is inspiring people with these like wonderful imaginative creations. I think Magnifico is interesting, very similar to The Fairy Godmother from Shrek 2, who is much more explicitly like a Disney critique. So she is in control of people's happy endings. She can grant your wishes, give you a happy ending, but only the people that she thinks deserve it, only the people that match her very strict worldview of who is a hero in a fairy tale and who's the villain. And that's very similar to what Magnifico is doing here. So it's interesting that it's taken this same strategy as a film and a franchise, which is much more openly critical of the Disney machine in particular. Maybe, I think, if you want to try and rationalise this, you could say the granddad is Walt Disney, Asher is, like, modern-day Disney. Maybe Asher's Jennifer Lee, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe Magnifico is, like, Michael Eisner, you know? Katzenberg! Jeffrey Katzenberg! Was there a scene where King Magnifico (laughs) opens a Diet Coke and chugs (laughs) it down before saying, cut all the music? So he's, like, corporate Disney, right? He's, like, this period of Disney's past which, yes, gave us all those great movies, but which people look back on as, like, a period of homogeneity. Like, those movies became extremely formulaic. We still loved them all, more or less, but they did. Undeniably, that is the period in which Disney became this behemoth, this, like, huge commercial giant this conglomerate which started absorbing loads of different companies some of which like for example the Muppet Studio created by Jim Henson who people still see as this very like wholesome guy um, who really kind of didn't get on with Disney during that negotiation process in the Eisner era so yeah maybe Magnifico is like the more corporate more cutthroat more homogenous formulaic world of Disney Uh, maybe you know whichever Bob is currently not CEO of the company fits into that mold as well. Because <laughs> I'm sure this movie probably started development under Iger and then went into production under JPEG and has now come back around to be released under Iger. So, yeah, at various points it could have stood in for various Bobs. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's that's like mercenary corporate Disney, which could also refer to particular periods in the company's history, which they obviously now want to position themselves as past. No matter what we think of of the modern Disney, they're trying to tell us that now we are back. 
now we are wholesome and friendly again. You know, we are all about magic and not about money anymore. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. I didn't quite expect this film to have an existential angst to it that I do think is in there. I'm far more interested in that than the conversation around oh, does this confirm that every Disney movie takes place in the same universe and Asher is the fairy godmother that we know from every Disney story and that is the wishing star of every Disney film and the mirror on the wall or the magic mirror is King Magnifica. No, no, it's not a shared universe. It's not a multiverse. It's just a lot of references in a new story. Right, because at the end, this guy, for example, dressed roughly like Peter Pan, this adult man wearing green tunic and hat, is says, oh, this is Peter and his wish was to fly, so now he's building a plane or whatever. I don't think that's to suggest that that man is literally Peter Pan, right? <laughs> Some people have been taking it that way. Maybe it's just the most annoying people on the internet who do this, like, hey, YouTube, oh, and this Disney movie just confirmed that every Disney movie takes place in the same universe. Yeah. Like, that is not what happens. I mean, there's a lot of references. There's like specific overt references to Peter Pan and Mary Poppins when Magnifico's flicking through what wishes he's going to grant or destroy, which I thought, much like the Seven Dwarfs thing, were fairly weak. Like, not not a single reference in this gave me like a, ooh, ha-ha, and I love references. I'm not cynical about references, you know? And you love going, woo ha-ha. <laughs> yeah, it's my favourite. You know, like the Spider-Man, Spider-Verse movies, we're talking about them again, but like, full of references. That's, that's all those movies are from a certain perspective, and I love it. I'm an absolute little simp for that. But here, that was not my... I mean, I was sending you pictures from that Disney Christmas special of like, oh man, in the background of this Coca-Cola commercial, you can see there's the three Caballero toys there. I love to just point at things and say, look, it's the thing. I had a lot of fun during the closing credits. But um, there just was not enough substance behind these references for them to be a multiverse, but also not enough thought behind them for them to be interesting. And they were very overt. If they were like a bit more subtle, I might have found it more fun as well, like an Easter egg. Hunt, but that's not what it was. It's saying, like, hello, look, it's Peter Pan, and now don't look at it anymore, don't think about it. But the point at the end of the day is we don't need Wish for this because we already have a very satisfying exploration of the Disney multiverse. It's called the Kingdom Hearts video games. <laughs> I this... thought you were going to say Shrek. <laughs> Shrek, Shrek, uh, Descendants, I could have said. I could yeah. have said Once Upon a Time. Depending on which of these, <laughs> House of Mouse, depending on which of these is your chosen tipple, the Disney multiverse has been confirmed going back decades. Oh, one day we've got to really dig into Kingdom Hearts. We'll need an entire bonus series just to get into that insane amount of lore. And that is it for this brief, or maybe not so brief, discussion of Wish. When we get there further down the line, we will, of course, be doing a full-on deep dive into the movie. But for now, we just wanted to do something to mark the arrival of an important film in the studio's history. And we'll be back in a week's time with our long-awaited Lilo and Stitch episode, which is going to be an absolutely massive one. Look out for that hitting your pod feeds in a week's time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this mini-ish episode please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you fancy dropping us a little review we'll put in a good word with the wishing star to pay close attention to you over the christmas months for now it's goodbye from sam goodbye and it's goodbye from me i make this wish sam to have something more for us than this 
whatever that means. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.